God, our Father, uh, we are really uh, pleased to have the opportunity to gather again. Um, the excitement is, is almost palpable. Uh, we're so eager to get back to learning together. We thank you for all the ways in which you have been pleased to bless and to enrich and uh, instruct us over the course of the past months uh, through this uh, course, the different modules. And we are so grateful, Father, uh, and join with many another in saying thank you again for your good healing hand on Jeremy, restoring him back to health and strength. We pray for him and his family at this time as they work their way through uh, COVID and COVID works its way through them. Guard and keep them, uh, sustain and strengthen them, uh, preserve them and uh, keep them in good health, we pray you. And grant that Jeremy himself may not only know the help of your Holy Spirit as he begins to lead us now through this module on church history, but may he be refreshed, blessed, and helped in himself as he does so, that he too may be the recipient of that ministry of your Holy Spirit. Uh, we commit our time to you, Father. We thank you that we may indeed come to you in that expectancy in the name of Jesus and ask simply that you would grant us that very real, very rich blessing now and anoint Jeremy for this ministry for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, over to you, Jeremy. Amen. Thank you very much, Jerry. After an introduction like that, even I'm looking forward to what I'm going to say. Um, it really is lovely to be back, and uh, it's so nice to kind of sense the tangible excitement that there is about NESGT, and uh, great that uh, you've probably all been reading books now that you never thought you would have read, and hopefully enjoying them, and I hope that this course is no different. Um, I'm going to put in front of you now the book that I'm recommending for this particular course. It, it's the best book that I have ever read on church history, in fact, one of the best books I've ever read because it reads like a novel. Now, it's, it's fairly chunky, as you can see. It's about 500 pages or so, Church History in Plain Language by a man called Bruce Shelley. And basically, I have divided up um, the various ages of church history according to this book. So I'm very much following the pattern of this book. Um, I would advise you to get this book, and, and but not to get bogged down in it. There may be some chapters that you find less interesting or less relevant than others. Feel free to flick until you find chapters that, um, that you really want to read about. Um, hopefully you'll all want to read about the Reformation and some of the core issues of church history. But I commend this book to you, and I think you'll be surprised how interesting you find it. Which leads me on to the very question, why should we study church history at all? I mean, maybe the word history for you is just not a very attractive word. You remember your days back at school studying history and, you know, remembering the dates of the Second World War and so on. It was not the most thrilling thing for you. And I've got to say, I, I was the same. I was not particularly drawn to history, didn't take it for O-level or A-level or anything like that. Um, but when I came to church history, having not been hugely excited about the prospect in Bible college, looking back now, 20 years ago, this was the course that literally changed my life. It inspired me more than my courses on preaching or even New Testament, dare I say. I had a brilliant church history lecturer called John Woodbridge, and, and he just opened up church history in a way like I have never heard um, before or since. So that's what got me passionate about it. I started to do my own kind of amateur reading. I am not a specialist in church history at all. So these next nine weeks are going to be the, cor the, the course of kind of my own reading 
Um, there are lots of gaps in my own knowledge of church history, but I hope to give you at least a broad brush overview of what's happened in the last 2000 years. And when we think about church history in particular, um, the way it differs from what we might call general world history is really church history is God's actions through his people in the world. So just as much as you would read the book of Acts or a history book from the Old Testament, the history of God's people from the end of Revelation till today is a history of God's activity. That's why we should be interested in it to begin with. And uh, we need to follow the lives of, of saints and sinners, if I could put it that way. It's part of being passionate about God's kingdom. We are a part, of course, of church history. Church history continues. And uh, we want to understand as Christians where we came from, as well as gleaning some understandings of where we're heading, because history tells us both things. But what has happened in the last 2000 years of church history? Um, for a lot of people, I think they read till the end of the New Testament. They know a little bit about the early church fathers, maybe the first couple of hundred years of Christianity. They know there was a bit of persecution. And then they jump from about two or 300 AD right over to the 1500s and the Reformation. And they'll know a little bit about Martin Luther. They'll know a little bit about John Calvin. And then when they start hearing the words, words like evangelicals and John Wesley, then they start to know more and more stories. But what happened in that massive gulf in between from about 200 to about 1500? We want to spend a good deal of time on this course thinking about that. What happened on the run-up to the Protestant Reformation? Why did there need to be a Protestant Reformation? What was happening in the then Catholic Church? And also for me, I have to say, as a, as a good Ulster Protestant, um, I have learned so much about the first Christians who would have called themselves Catholic Christians, not Roman Catholic Christians with all the theology that the Reformation sought to undo. But there, there were no Protestants before 1500. Anyone who was a Christian called themselves a Catholic Christian. The word just means universal. And some of our church heroes come from this Catholic background. And we need to understand them. Folks like Augustine, folks like Jerome, um, who wrote one of the first translations of the Bible called the Latin Vulgate and so on. I hope to introduce you to a whole series of heroes, some of whom you'll never have heard of before, um, who would have called themselves Catholics, but are as much heroes of the faith as Martin Luther or, or, or John Wesley. And just the stories of these heroes is inspiring in itself. Um, we'll find that folks like Luther, for example, were flawed heroes. Luther did as much wrong as he did right. In fact, he was a very difficult person to be with, as we'll discover. And you can find this throughout church history. God uses men and women who have huge flaws in them. Uh, of course, that's true in scripture, isn't it? I mean, King David in his affair with Bathsheba, um, Peter denying Christ. Paul was a religious terrorist to some extent. Um, the, the, the people that God used throughout scripture were flawed heroes. And that's what we continue to find in this last 2000 years. They are flawed heroes, which is a reminder for us that God can use us with all our weaknesses, with all our struggles today. God can use us powerfully, just as he used these great heroes from the past. They weren't born heroes. Um, God made them into men and women that he could shape and that he would give courage to um, in the battles that they were fighting in their day. Another interesting facet of church history, of course, is that we learn about the development of theology. Um, some of the main arguments in the first few hundred years of the church were about the deity of Christ. Could you believe that 
Christ was truly God and truly man. We'll look into how those ideas developed. We'll think about the authority of the Bible. How did the canon of the Bible come together so that we see these 66 books as books that have the authority of God, the fingerprints of God, that are God-breathed above any other books? What's the Apocrypha? You might have heard that word. Other books that have been rejected by from the Protestant scriptures and from the Jewish scriptures, indeed. Um, what's that all about and why were they rejected? We'll also find out about salvation. How did the theology of salvation come together? And we'll find that throughout church history, of course, um, it is heretics who are coming along, who are questioning some area of the Bible that then forces the church to say, well, what do we really believe about these things? And that's where Christian doctrine comes from. We've needed the heretics, as it were. We've needed the heresies to come so that the church understands what its beliefs truly are and can shape doctrine. It's also a reminder, I think, as we study church history, that the church is bigger than we think. I think this is such a healthy thing for us all to do. You know, I come from a brethren background. I would call myself kind of independent evangelical now, but it was so important for me to learn that the church is so much bigger than my denomination. In fact, God has used people from very different denominations. In fact, if you think about it, the vast majority of the great things that God has done through his people have occurred outside my own denomination. Now, it's not that I don't want to love and value my denomination. I want to know the history of where my denomination came from, what brought it into being. But I also want to realize that I'm going to share heaven with believers from all kinds of different backgrounds who attend churches at the minute that I would never darken the door off. But they are brothers and sisters in Christ, and I'm going to be sharing heaven with them. And I think a study of, of church history and the heroes and the denominations and all the different ways that God used people for his glory helps me to realize, helps me to remain humble. My denomination, my own reading of scripture is not the dominating thing. God can work outside the confines that perhaps I have created for him. Lord, you can only work in conservative evangelical churches. Is that all that God's doing today in conservative evangelical churches? Church history will teach us that God is up to an awful lot more than what's happening in my denomination or even what I would call the evangelical church. And I think one final thing about church history as we introduce it here is that it helps us understand the trends of today. It'll be amazing to discover some of the things that keep repeating themselves in church history. We will look at a belief system called Gnosticism, for example. And there are elements of Gnosticism from the first few hundred years of church history that have come up again in the New Age movement, that have come up again with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, heresies that keep on being repeated. Heresies that are often presented as new and fresh, divergent from Christian orthodoxy, but actually, when you dis discover them closely, the church has already wrestled with those heresies in the past and has come to its orthodox position so that we can understand heresies today. We need as Christians to be able to understand what is a heresy, to recognize the heresy so that not only we reject that heresy ourselves, but that we can guard and protect others in our churches um, who may be, may be falling for those heresies. So um, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, old heresies come back in new clothes. So that's me basically finished page one of our outline. Hope you have the outline in front of you. And we're going to start proper now um, with talking about Jesus and the age of the apostles. So I hope you have that sheet in front of you. Um, this is, of course, how uh, Shelley opens his book, 
Jesus and the Age of Apostles. So we're, we're only going to be looking tonight um, till about 70 AD. And then next week we'll begin with 70 AD because something crucial happened in 70 AD to change the course of church history um, with the fall of Jerusalem. But we'll come back to that. So tonight we're going to spend a, quite a bit of time just in the New Testament, what happened in the New Testament, and a little bit afterwards. So that's our goal, our very simple goal for tonight. And hopefully at about 8.30 I will give you a break. I don't have a clock in front of me, which is always a dangerous thing for a preacher. Ah, it's quarter to eight. There we go. So I've got 45 minutes to get you through this first section. So the age of Jesus and the apostles, this is where we want to start. Jesus was born, we believe, in about 5 BC. Um, we know that because Herod the Great, who uh, is very much part of the early Jesus story, um, we know that he died in 4 BC. And of course, as he is wanting to get rid of the Christ child, he is killing all the children who are aged two or under. So therefore, Jesus must have been under two when Herod died in 4 BC. And of course, Jesus didn't come straight into this lovely religious setup called Judaism. Um, he came into a, a, a Jewish world where the Romans were in charge. The Romans were the rulers. They were in power. From about 70 BC, we'll find that the, the Romans took over from the Greeks. Um, just to give you a quick bird's eye view of what happened from the end of the Old Testament to the New Testament, you'll remember that the Persians were in power at the end of the Old Testament. They were the great superpower in days of Ezra and Nehemiah and, and the, the last few prophets that we read about. But then, of course, they were defeated, as every superpower is. They were defeated by the Greeks under Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great, possibly the greatest military general of all time, um, we told that at the age of 32, he wept and wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. Greece had taken over the world. That's very important because the influence of Greek language and culture were very much evident in Jesus' day. Um, Alexander dies. He passes his empire onto four generals. There are fights and so on. Um, and after those fights, about 40 year long of fights between these four generals of Alexander, there emerge um, three great empires, only two of which are important to us. One are the Ptolemies, um, who ruled around the Egypt area. Um, Cleopatra would, be, would have been part of the Ptolemies, that kind of thing. And then there were the Seleucids. Now, you don't need to know all of this. I'm not going to set an exam on this, but one of the Seleucid um, rulers was a man called Antiochus Epiphanes who appeared um, in the mid-100s BC, and he came right into Jerusalem, and he performed what the prophet Daniel had called the abomination of desolation. Antiochus Epiphanes was brutal. He was brutal to the Jews, and he even went as far as sacrificing a pig on the Jewish altar in the Jewish temple, which was the most horrendous thing you could do to possibly offend the Jews. He was doing it deliberately. He killed thousands of Jews, and... Uh, Daniel, who points to a future Antichrist figure coming, he talks about Antiochus years in advance, hundreds of years in advance, to say, here is the kind of Antichrist figure who will come in the future. Antiochus begins this whole theme of the Antichrist. And of course, we're still waiting for the ultimate Antichrist in the future. But Antiochus Epiphanes was a key leader. And what happened during the days when Jerusalem and Israel were being attacked by these foreigners like Antiochus is they stood firm. And in fact, um, the group that we would call the Pharisees, they emerged during the days of Antiochus. They wanted to defend Judaism. They wanted to defend the law of God. They became utterly zealous about the law of God. 
So we need to understand that context when Jesus takes on the Pharisees in a lot of his discussions. The Pharisees arose as great protectors of Judaism, but they probably went over the top in their protection of the law, which is why Jesus comes and when he starts to reinterpret the law as they saw it, he becomes public enemy number one. But just interesting to understand that the Greeks came and uh, the Jews were abused by them and groups like the Pharisees arose to defend Judaism. We also have a group of people called the Maccabees, Judas Maccabees. I won't go into big, uh, uh, to big history there, but guys like Judas Maccabees who defended Israel against the Greeks, um, people would have been wondering, was he the Messiah? This figure of Messiah that the Old Testament kept on pointing to, all the Jews were looking for Messiah. Who is it? And of course, a great hero like Judas Maccabees, who defends Judaism, they think, is this the Messiah? Of course, he wasn't. And of course, his movement dies out. But by the time Jesus comes along, um, the Greek Empire has, has given way to the Roman Empire. Rome is the big man in town. Rome's military is the most frightening military there has been in the history of the world. They come, they take over Jerusalem, um, and now uh, Jerusalem is under Roman occupation. And so um, the Jews, as they did under the Greeks, as they did under the, under the Persians, they are a persecuted people. And this is the, the scenario in which Jesus is born in occupied territory sharing the sufferings that we share as human beings so that's a bit of the background that leads us into jesus being born in in uh in 5 bc jesus of course was an itinerant jewish rabbi um we would probably have heard next to nothing about jesus of nazareth had he not risen from the dead well you could probably throw in old testament prophecies pointing to him but really he lived an incredibly obscure life when you think about it um, from the age of zero to 30, we would call them the silent years. Jesus is hardly doing anything. We hear about his birth. We hear about a story when he's 12 years old. Luke tells us about that. Then he has three years and he spends most of his time, most of his public ministry for those three years in Galilee up in the north, which is ridiculous. That's where the peasants lived. That was not the powerhouse at all. Jerusalem was the powerhouse. And even if Jerusalem was the powerhouse in Israel, the whole of Israel was considered just this unfortunate runt of the Roman Empire. The Jews were always causing problems, but they were a tiny nation. They were certainly nothing on the world stage. And not only was Jesus born in Israel, but he was brought up in, in Galilee, where all the peasants lived, not even the power center of Israel. And he's raised in Nazareth. And, you know, you remember, can anything good come from Nazareth? Population about 120 when Jesus was born. He was born in a sense, as a nobody, nowhere. And it's only at the age of 30, he takes on a public ministry, starts doing miracles, and starts drawing some public attention. So the Jews from Jerusalem hear about his miracles in the north, and they come to investigate what's this all about. Um, but Jesus dies. And in history, um, when a messianic figure died, that was the end of the movement. There were movements that were far bigger than Jesus movement his 12 disciples or his 72 remember he sends out 72 in this gospel there was maybe about 72 to 100 followers of Jesus when he dies um and normally at the death of the leader the movement just fades away that is the end of it but something happened and every historian knows this something happened in the Jesus story that actually when he died after he died the whole thing took off it utterly exploded in an unprecedented way. Now, what made that happen? 
um, well, sociologists will say, they're not even biblical scholars, sociologists will say that the resurrection is the key factor for the rise of Christianity. Um, there's a book I read by a man called Rodney Stark. He, he traces, he's not a Christian at all, but he was tracing the rise of Christianity. And he was saying, well, how on earth did Christianity go from being this tiny group in Jerusalem, this little rut of the Roman Empire? How did it grow from the 120 who met in the upper room in Acts chapter 1? Do you remember that? 120 believers meeting in fear in the upper room? The story of the first 300 years is that between AD 33, without a group of 120, and AD 300, 120 became 44 million, over half the Roman Empire. And the first 300 years of the history of the church is asking the question, how on earth did that happen? And of course, as Christians, we can say, well, because Jesus really did rise from the dead, because Jesus really did pour out his Holy Spirit on the church. And the church took this incredibly unlikely message that the son of a Jewish carpenter being uh, brought up in Galilee was actually the son of God and the savior of the world. It's the very unlikelihood of that story being accepted by the Roman world that actually is the counterintuitive proof behind Christianity, I think. Um, something happened after Jesus died and, uh, and the thing grew like wildfire. There is no other people movement that can compare to the speed and the breadth of the rise of Christianity. And of course, it's still growing today. Um, we probably hear news and think that it's Islam that's the biggest religion. It's not. Christianity is still the biggest religion in the world, and it's still the fastest growing people movement in the world and has been for the whole of its history. So we are part of a remarkable social phenomenon where it's much more than just a social phenomenon, of course, but even secular historians have to ask the question, how did Christianity mushroom? The book of Acts will, of course, be the history book of the New Testament. It's, it tells us the beginning of the story of the gospel spreading. And you'll know that the gospel begins in Jerusalem in Acts, 20, in Acts 1, and it ends in Rome in Acts 28. And the, the book of Acts stops suddenly. You think, well, what happens to Paul? Paul is under house arrest in Rome. I want to know what happens next. Acts doesn't tell me what happens next because it's not there to tell me about Peter or about Paul. It's there to tell me about the gospel, that the gospel has made its journey from Jerusalem to Rome. And as soon as it lands in Rome, end of the book of Acts. But of course, that story of the gospel going from Jerusalem to, uh, to, to Rome, we are continuing that story. Um, I love that mission movement, that church planting movement called Acts 29. You and I are Acts 29. We are taking the gospel just as Paul did, just as Peter did, just as the first Christians did. We are taking it to the ends of the earth as Jesus commanded us to do. But we'll understand how the gospel spread internationally um, as we look at the day of Pentecost, for example, in Acts chapter 2. You'll remember that there was an international crowd of Jews gathered on that day. This was planned by God because he wanted the impact of the gospel to spread very, very rapidly. So there's Jews, and you remember Luke says they're from all over Mesopotamia. They've all come to Jerusalem for the, for the Passover festival. Um, and now at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls. And the timing is absolutely perfect. The Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost. So the disciples are there ready to take this message out in languages that they hadn't learned to this international crowd of Jews who were just visiting Jerusalem before heading back to their own countries. And the powerful implication is that those 
people who became Christians, you remember on that Pentecost sermon, 3,000 ran into the church that day. They were internationals who went back to their hometowns, their home cities, and started to witness about Jesus Christ. That is how Christianity started spreading with this massive people movement. And of course, in the rest of the New Testament, we'll just hear a tiny percentage of that spread. We'll follow Philip, we'll follow Peter, we'll follow Paul for a large amount of his three missionary journeys and where he goes. But that's just a tiny percentage of the sheer number of Christians who were spreading here, there and everywhere across the Roman Empire, bringing the message of Jesus with them. Um, I mentioned here about Philip, who meets the Ethiopian eunuch. Again, you can see God's God's special planning here. Philip doesn't just meet any random person. Remember, the Spirit carries Philip to meet this individual because this is a key individual. What's so key about him? Well, he's from Ethiopia, so clearly God wants the gospel to go to Ethiopia, but he's also a high-up official. So he will have more influence in the courts of Ethiopia, in the power areas of Ethiopia, than the average Ethiopian would have. So God is planning an evangelist to come and see this Ethiopian eunuch saved and take the gospel back to the highest places in Ethiopia. You can see the plan of God. And I think the plan of God points to the strategy that we should have. Just as Paul is visiting cities, just as Paul is visiting centers of power to spread the gospel, that's what we should be doing today. We go to cities, centers of power to spread the gospel. Not that people in outlying areas don't need the gospel, but if, a, if the gospel comes to a major center, then a, a church develops in that major center and that church takes the gospel out to its outlying areas. There's a real strategy in the apostles, Paul and others, taking the gospel to key areas, key cities at key times and in key places um, so that the gospel can have as much influence as possible. But whatever we do as we're reading Acts, we cannot say, I'm going to keep the gospel within these four walls. I need to think strategically about how the gospel is going to go from, in my case, Miltimber to the North Deeside Corridor to Aberdeen, to Scotland, to the UK, to the world. That's how Acts wants us to think. And that's the, how the whole of church history wants us to think, actually. So this is how the gospel is spreading. Um, point B here, the gospel was spreading east and west through other means not recorded in the New Testament. And there were lots of unnamed heroes. Um, you'll remember, for example, when Paul writes to the church in Rome, which was perhaps the single most important church in the New Testament, obviously Rome's center of the empire, and there were lots of Jews and lots of Gentiles there in this church. You can tell that from the letter, Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, but Paul did not found the church in Rome. Other believers founded the church in Rome before Paul ever got there. He had never been there, and he greets this whole bunch of people, of course, in Acts 16, that that passage that's a nightmare for a preacher, greets all these people we've never heard of before, um, whom Paul knows were part of that Roman church, and uh, it was planted before he ever came. And that would be true of churches across the empire. Um, lots of Christian mission work that the Bible tells us nothing about that was already happening. In fact, we, we know that in 52 AD, the Roman emperor expelled um, a group of Jews, because the Jews were fighting with Christians there, they were arguing over somebody called Crestus. There's a, there's a, a Roman historian called Suetonius who tells us this fight in Rome was happening at the instigation of Crestus. Now, it probably means Crestus was the Latin word for Christ. So Jews and Christians in Rome were arguing about who Jesus Christ is, understandably, because, of course, Jews did not think he was God. Christians did think he was God. Big argument. And you could see how many hundreds of Jews, perhaps thousands of Jews and Christians were already in Rome because it's a really big deal for the emperor to have to sort out. 
And the way he sorts out that is by expelling all these Jews and Christians, two of whom were Priscilla and Aquila. So Priscilla and Aquila end up in Corinth because they've been expelled from Rome. That's part of the history. And we can see how how massively developed the church in Rome already was before Paul or any other apostle actually got there. Just to mention about Britain in passing, when, when did Christianity begin in Britain? I mean, the first official mission to Britain was in 597 AD, a guy called Augustine, a different Augustine to kind of the, the main figure, Augustine, that we'll be studying about. This was Augustine of Canterbury. He sets up his mission in Canterbury, hence why we get the See of Canterbury today, the, the major church and the Archbishop of Canterbury and so on. He came in 597 AD, but Christianity goes back much further than that in Britain, but we don't know who. We're almost sure that it was businessmen, it was traveling merchants who had to travel across the Roman Empire. They ended up in Britain to do business. And as they were there doing business, they shared about Christ. They gossiped about Christ and Christians started to to believe in Jesus um, right even in Britain. And we we praise God that uh, the gospel came as far as us. North Africa becomes a major center of Christianity. Again, that's hardly mentioned at all in the New Testament. Um, later on, we'll find that um, St. Augustine himself, the main St. Augustine, he was in the town of Hippo in North Africa. North Africa becomes an intellectual center for the gospel as well. Um, tradition says that uh, the Apostle Thomas, he took the gospel to India. And it's fascinating, there's a whole group of Christians called the Mar Toma in India to this day, who trace their beginnings back to the Apostle Thomas. Now, we don't have you know, there's no pictures, obviously, of Thomas coming to India. We can't prove it on that level. But it is fascinating that for 2,000 years now, there has been this church, this group of churches in India, which had no Christianity before um, the, the days of, the, of, of Thomas. Um, they trace their ancestry back to Thomas. It's fascinating. About two months ago, I got a phone call from a church in London saying, could you come and speak at our anniversary weekend? I thought, okay, well, who are you? Where are you from? They said, we're we're part of the Thomas Christians from India. Extraordinary. There's a church in London that comes from uh, a place in India. Um, the Kerala region is where most Christians are in India, and they owe their Christian heritage to Thomas. So you just imagine when, when Thomas said to Jesus, um, my Lord and my God, when he saw the nails in Jesus' hands and feet, what did he then do? Well, he says, I've got to give my life for my Lord and my God. And he traveled as far as India, which was pretty far for any mystery in those days. Gave his life there, but started a church there, which 2,000 years later still links itself to the Apostle Thomas. When you give yourself to the gospel, your name lives on. Um, we know from the New Testament as well that the church becomes predominantly Gentile. Of course, the big issue here was, you know, the church was Jewish originally, and there was big controversy as to on what basis Gentiles were allowed to enter the church. And you'll remember in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, um, where Paul is rushing back to join with the other Jewish leadership to get this issue sorted. On what basis can Gentiles come into the church? Do they have to observe Jewish rituals, Jewish food laws? Do they have to be circumcised? That was a key question in order to become Christians. And Paul was arguing strongly that no Gentiles could come into the church on the basis of pure belief in Jesus Christ. They didn't have to have any addition of Jewish rituals for that to happen. They could come straight in. But of course, that created a lot of ill feeling among very conservative Jews who had lived with 
with Jewish rituals all their lives. That's all that they'd ever known. How can we suddenly set those to one side? And you just simply say, well, faith in Jesus Christ is all that counts. So, of course, um, a compromise is reached in the uh, Jerusalem Council. And James, who was one of the most conservative Jews, he stands in the middle of them and says, brothers, it's clear from the stories that Peter and Paul is telling of the Holy Spirit coming upon Gentiles the moment they believe. It's very clear that God is now allowing Gentiles to come into his church through simple faith in Jesus Christ. Let us not burden them with any more. Um, and then they write that very wise letter to, to, uh, to Gentile churches saying, make sure you don't offend your Jewish brothers by watching out for three things, um, sexual immorality and the blood of strangled animals, all that kind of thing. The kind of thing that would offend your Jewish brothers, just make sure you watch out for that. But you can come into the church of Jesus Christ on the same basis as any Jew you both come through faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so when that decision is made in Acts 15, then the gospel just um, blossoms in the Gentile world. Now, one thing we need to realize here is it's when were the gospels written, these basic biographies of Jesus? Um, as we come towards, say, the 70s and 80s AD, a lot of the original apostles, the 12 apostles, um, are beginning to die out. And of course, um, the inerrancy of scripture, the authority of scripture is linked to these apostles. These are the guys who were the witnesses of Jesus. These are the guys who were to tell the story. Um, but a lot of the gospels didn't appear first. We'll see here on this diagram, um, the book of Galatians, for example, appears in 49 AD. And you know, the book of Galatians, the whole argument there is about justification by faith. So Paul already in the book of Galatians, um, the story of Jesus is widely known, the story that will eventually become the Gospels. It's widely known. The theology of the church is widely known. You need to come to faith in Christ. You are justified by faith alone. That point has already been made. Jesus Christ is all you need for salvation. Um, so the stories of Jesus must have been well known. A high Christology must have already developed by 49 AD so that Paul can write this letter to the Galatians in 49. But the Gospels, look at that. Mark, who, which is probably the earliest Gospel, doesn't come till probably the mid-50s. And Matthew into the 60s, we're almost sure. So the Gospels, the written records of Jesus' miracles and his teachings and all of that, those um, stories were already widely circulating right from day one about Jesus, right from the resurrection happening. Those stories were circulating all around the place. And you remember... Luke saying, as he begins his gospel, I've, I've researched with many eyewitnesses who are telling these stories of Jesus. And now I'm going to take these stories of Jesus and put them into this book. So the gospels are written um, well after these stories of Jesus have been learned and loved and accepted by Christians all over the place. They then started to realize, look, the apostles are dying out. These, these main witnesses of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's make sure that these apostles write down write down the facts that they know about Jesus, the stories that they know, inspired, of course, by the Holy Spirit as they do it. And that's what formed the Gospels. But it's very interesting that the stories of Jesus were already so known and so circulated, and Christian theology was already so developed before the Gospels were even written, that Paul is writing most of his theologically rich letters um, um, before the Gospels are written. I mean, look at Romans, the most theologically rich book of all, uh, 57 to 58 AD, perhaps about the time that Mark is being written. Maybe Mark's written even slightly later than Romans, and yet you see the whole story of salvation that Paul lays out there. Um, and then the Gospel of Mark is probably Peter's um, testimony, a lot of an eyewitness testimony 
um, written to um, a Roman audience, people believe, um, explaining that Jesus was uh, both the son of God and the suffering servant. That's Mark's basic theme, that Jesus is both son of God. That's the first half of Mark's gospel, all the miracle stories and casting out demons to prove that Jesus is the son of God, but he's also the suffering servant. Um, Jesus tells Peter and the disciples, I'm going to suffer. Peter says, no, Lord, you're not going to suffer. That's the center point of Mark. And then Jesus explains, not only it, will he suffer, but Christians have to suffer with him. And the gospel of Mark was written to a Roman church facing persecution for their belief that Jesus was the son of God, who needed to hear, look, here are the stories of Jesus to show that he's the son of God and he's worth dying for. He suffered for you, so you should suffer for him. So it's just interesting to see when these Bible books came along, a lot of Christians were already in place believing these stories of Jesus before the books were ever written. Um, if we turn the page, the uh, New Testament was completed with, with the book of Revelation by 95 AD. Um, interesting that John is connected with the book of Revelation. John was the last surviving apostle. Um, he was the only apostle that we know of who wasn't martyred for their faith. And we realize that this word martyred, actually, um, the word martyros in the Greek originally meant witness. It was the word for witness. But it became the word for martyr because early Christian witnesses were all martyred. That's the point. Witnessing became so closely associated with martyrdom that you'd, if you were a witness, a public witness for Jesus Christ, you were almost bound to die for your faith. That's how difficult it was being a Christian in the, in the first 300 years of the church. Um, so the word martyros changed from being simply a witness to being a martyr, someone who dies for the faith. What a challenge that is to us today, isn't it? We live in the shadow of Christian martyrs, of men and women who, have, who are ordinary like us, who spilt their blood for the cause of Christ. And, and you'll have seen no doubt that the pictures of, uh, you know, reconstruction of the, the Colosseum in Rome, where Christians are being led out um, to be placed in front of lions that had been starved for the purposes so they could just tear apart Christians in front of a cheering crowd. You had men, women, and children. In fact, one of the most famous stories of Christian martyrdom was of a lady called Perpetua. She was held up eventually to be a saint. And it's the story of Perpetua and her son as they cling hold of each other, being marched out into the arena to give their lives for Jesus Christ. And um, I look at my Christian life now, my very soft, suburban um, TV channel, um, Bible in multiple versions, easy walk to church, unpersecuted Christian life. And I think to myself, um, I've barely begun to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I've barely begun to be a witness because people like Perpetua, a lady who takes her son into the arena because... Um, their blood is worth less to them than Jesus Christ. These are the men and women in whose shadows we walk. So John was the last surviving apostle. It's interesting that uh, John chapter 21, remember that discussion Jesus has with Peter on the beach? And Peter's being told, look, you're going to be crucified um, upside down, as tradition would tell us. And uh, Peter's then saying, well, what about John? What about him? Um, if this is your story for my life, why doesn't he have to get martyred as well? And uh, um, Jesus says, don't worry about that, Peter. Um, if John is alive when I come, what is that to you? It's interesting that John says that his gospel would have been written late. One of the latest books here, look, is between AD 85 to 90, after Peter's died. Peter's dead 15, 20 years. And so John makes sure he adds that bit in his gospel because he knew he would be the last, he was the last surviving apostle. 
And if John is still alive when I come, what is that to you? John makes sure he adds that in the book because Peter had long since died. Of course, the tradition of Peter um, associates him with Rome, and we know the whole history of that. Um, Peter is crucified in Rome. Um, pretty strong tradition, I would say, um, says that he, he wanted to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to die like his Lord. But he is one of um, the stories of multiple apostles. Here's a chart. What happened to the apostles and where are their remains today? Um, now, a lot of this is tradition. I can't say that what this what this uh, picture says about all the apostles is exactly true. Um, but we do know for certain that 11 out of the 12 apostles were martyred. And John, all we know is that John spent uh, his days in the Isle of Patmos, where he wrote Revelation. We don't know what happened after that. But suffice to say, when we look back at Christian history and say these disciples believed that Jesus has risen, had risen from the dead, we can take great confidence that what they're saying is true because they were willing to die for that belief. If that was a lie, there's plenty of other people in history that have that have um, died for a lie, no doubt about that. But there's hardly anyone who has died for what they knew to be a lie. And even the most secular historians would say that all the apostles, all of Jesus' disciples were convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus had risen. And the main reason why secular historians cannot accept the resurrection of Jesus is not because history doesn't back it up, but because miracles can't happen. It's just that. It's an a priori belief that miracles can't happen. So if miracles can't happen, we can't believe in the resurrection, there must be some other explanation. They don't have a good alternative explanation. Because not only do these 12 claim that they saw Jesus alive, but they gave their own lives for that truth. Um, it's powerful, really, when you put it all together. So Peter is crucified in Rome. Um, there's a fifth century book called The Passion of Peter and Paul, which tells the story of Peter um, dying on a hill called the Vatican. And you don't need me to tell you the implications of that place, the Vatican. Um, I wonder what Peter would make of that today. And of course, one of the great fuel for the Protestant Reformation was the riches of, of the Vatican and this massive, impressive, daunting church full of jewels worth billions, literally. Um, is that the kind of thing that the barefooted Christ and the Peter who gave his life would have would have wanted? Um, and of course, fuel for Reformation was, you know, look at the riches in the Catholic Church and how they're using it. Um, this is not the way of Christ. Peter's body was taken down to the Vatican. And of course, there's this belief that he is buried underground in the Vatican and that every pope since then um, is buried in the Vatican underground. It's truly holy ground, as they call it. We're going to come back to arguments for the papacy and against the papacy, as you can imagine, um, in, in a few weeks. Paul also probably died in Rome. Um, you remember he said at the end of Romans that he was going to visit Spain. He planned to visit Spain and he was going to use Rome as a base for them to support him so he could continue his mission work in Spain. Um, but he probably came back to die in Rome. And um, then the gospel spreads from Jerusalem to Rome within 20 years of Jesus' death. That's the extraordinary thing. So Peter and Paul, you think of Peter, this simple fisherman from Capernaum. Um, whose life is turned upside down by Christ. And he dies not in Capernaum, a, sleeping, a sleepy village where his parents and grandparents would have lived out their lives and died. He dies 3,000 miles away in Rome as a martyr, claiming that Jesus was the Son of God. That's part of the story. That's just a part of 
history that no one can deny what made Peter um, turn into the hero of the Vatican. So um, point three here, let me give reasons for why um, we think the gospel spread so quickly. Obviously, the coming of the spirit and the resurrection, those are the two big ones why the gospel spread so rapidly. But Galatians 4 has a very interesting verse. It says, when the time had fully come, God sent his son. Well, why was the time that Jesus lived, why was that such an important time, such a, a good time for the gospel to spread widely? What if Jesus had come 100 years before that or 300 years before that? Why was that, you know, 4 BC, why was that when the time had fully come? Well, I think there are several reasons to see why that was a cracking time for a message that was going to change the world for that message to arrive. Number one, you had Roman roads. Romans built brilliant roads. And of course, their, their empire across the world united the world in a way that had never happened before. The world was bigger in unity under the Roman Empire than in any previous time. And the Romans built these incredible roads, which are, many of them are still around today. And so it was easier to travel than it had been 50 years before the Romans came or 100 years before the Romans came. And of course, traveling is so key to Paul. He walks everywhere. He's walking in Asia Minor. He's walking in Europe. He's taking his traveling companions with him. And everywhere he goes, he has safe passage because, because of the great roads. There's also the Pax Romana, which we call the Roman Peace um, so that Roman citizens were allowed to travel freely across the Roman Empire. They couldn't be detained. And you remember that big argument that Paul has when uh, he has been put in stocks in Philippi, isn't it? And uh, he then tells, um, tells the, the Roman officials there, look, I'm a Roman citizen. And suddenly they begin to panic. Do you know you're a Roman citizen, Paul? We're not allowed to do these kind of things to Roman citizens. If you're just a Jewish imposter, we can do whatever we like with you. If you're a Roman citizen, oh my goodness, you have freedom of travel. And so Paul gets these guys to escort him out of the city. And of course, he does that deliberately so that the church that he leaves behind in Philippi is protected and that the Romans will not judge them for it because it's been planted by a Roman citizen. So you have this Pax Romana that Roman citizens enjoyed that they could travel freely across the world. You also have the Greek language. So you have Roman roads, um, Roman peace, and you also have Greek language. And of course, you'll know that your New Testament is written originally in Greek. This is so, so important. Um, basically, Alexander the Great and the empire he built left such a powerful language behind it, that that language continued to be the accepted language across the world, even when the Romans came in. And so as the New Testament is being written, as the apostles are writing the New Testament, um, they wrote it intentionally in Greek so that the language in which it was written could reach the farthest possible. And the Greek language traveled further than any previous language had ever traveled. In addition to that, there's a fascinating fact that the Old Testament, which were Hebrew scriptures, and of course, how many people knew Hebrew? What a what a rare language! What a what a um, backwater language, if you like Hebrew. I mean, how how is the Old Testament going to get out to the wider world? Well, um, we know that uh, the Septuagint is a translation of the Old Testament scriptures from the Hebrew into the Greek. And so when Paul is coming into a new city in his missions work and he goes into a synagogue and he starts to preach and then starts to preach the Gentiles, he's going into cities that already have the Old Testament scriptures in Greek. 
so that everybody can read it and people are aware of Judaism and what it stands for, the ethics of Judaism and the promises of Judaism that this Messiah would come. So Paul is able to, he doesn't have to start from scratch as he comes into a city. There's already the Old Testament scriptures there in Greek. And then, of course, as the New Testament is written in Greek, it can go far and wide here, there and everywhere. There was a dispersion of Jews throughout Asia and Europe. Jewish people are widely traveled. There's been a dispersion of Jews many times throughout history. And of course, Jews bring this Old Testament, bring this Judaism with them wherever they go. And so we find that, that one of the peoples who were particularly, should we say, targeted by Paul and the apostles um, were what we would call God-fearers. God-fearers were people who were Gentiles, had come from a pagan Roman background, and who were attracted to the moral code of Judaism. They were attracted to the God of the Jews because they read about him in their Greek Old Testaments. And so you'll have folks like Cornelius, who is called a God-fearer. He was a Roman centurion, completely Roman background, but he knows enough about the Jewish scriptures. Um, and in all the cities where the apostles go, um, there is a group of God-fearers. That's what Paul's looking for. You remember folks like Lydia, who he meets, um, they were praying by the river. He wants to go to a synagogue, can't find a synagogue in Philippi. So he, he finds a riverbank where people are praying. There are God-fearers praying to a Jewish God that they don't know much about. And Paul comes in, shares the gospel with them, and their hearts are already primed to receive the gospel. So the influence of the Old Testament scriptures in Greek was already in all of these Europe and Asian cities um, for Paul and his apostles um, preaching to come and uh, win converts who God was already preparing. It's thrilling, really. And it's, I think it's a, it's a personal encouragement to each of us when we go to somebody who we think is, is, is totally pagan. Um, you know, there's no chance of this person ever wanting the gospel, let alone understanding it. Um, don't underestimate how God might have already been at work in that person's life before you come. Um, we believe in divine appointments, don't we? And the, the network of people that God has placed in your life, God has possibly already been working in in advance so that when you come, you're not starting from scratch. God's already at work in that person's life. I've seen it in my own neighbors here. Um, guy two doors down from me. Um, I remember I was up doing a, um, doing a mission up in Bucky. And this lady comes up and says, uh, you know, I've got your book, Jeremy. Can you sign it for me? I said, sure. She says, well, well who, who, who should I sign it to? He says, well, sign it to James. And I recognized the name of the guy that I needed to sign it to. Uh, and I said, oh, that's my, my neighbor's called that name. And she says, I know he is my son-in-law. And it turns out that this guy, who I thought was a complete pagan, had been brought up in a brethren assembly and his wife had been brought up in a Pentecostal background. And so there was a connection that I never knew was there. So we invited them to our child dedication and uh, have kept, kept touch with them ever since. God is at work in people's lives. We know that because when the gospel came originally, he had already been at work widely so that when the gospel comes in the Greek language over Roman roads during days of the Pax Romana, it had its, uh, it's had its ability to travel like, like never before. Right, what I want to do is to finish off tonight with um, talking about evidence for Jesus Christ outside the Bible. One of the key questions people have is, you know, if Jesus is such an important figure, why is he not mentioned outside the Bible? Well, he is mentioned, and we're going to look at some of those passages in a little while. You may be thinking, by the way, up to now, look, all we've really talked about is the New Testament. Um, and I came here for a church history course. 
Um, we're just getting started. We're just getting warmed up. You will find the pace will will rise um, as we head to AD 70 and beyond next week. But it's important that we set this background out um, so that we have an awareness of New Testament times and what happens straight afterwards. So um, I'm at the bottom of page four now, and I want to spend this time because I think it's a fascinating area looking at evidence outside the Bible, both for who Jesus was, um, what Jesus did, and what the first Christians believed about him during the times of the New Testament and beyond. It's one thing for us to say, well, the Bible says, so that's all we need as evangelicals. The Bible tells us about Jesus, so I don't need anything else. Great, true, we've tested the Bible for ourselves and know it to be the word of God. But if you're thinking about, you know, how do I share with a non-Christian friend who says, well, the Bible's just propaganda, isn't it? The New Testament's just biased and all these miracle accounts of Jesus. How can I begin as a, as a modern day scientific human being to accept something like that? Well, it might be helpful just to lead people to um, to writers outside the Bible who didn't have an axe to grind at all about Christians who are just telling history, the history of Christians as they saw it. We don't have many of these. Um, I remember thinking early in life that, I, you know, why was there not a lot more written about Jesus in Jesus' day? But of course, there's a good reason for that, that Jesus is brought up in Galilee. He lives an incredibly obscure life, never leaves his own country. And it's only after his death and resurrection that the apostles start even writing about him. And then the message spreads. And then people start writing about these Christians. And so we're going to look at somebody called Josephus and a couple of other historians who wrote about Christians and then um, analyze what they say about Jesus Christ from there. So it's very interesting that the, the Jewish historian Josephus actually seems to be more interested in John the Baptist than he does Jesus. He mentions Jesus, of course, and we'll come to that, but he mentions John the Baptist, he mentions the Pharisees. So as we look at Josephus, who was basically a Roman sympathizer, um, Josephus was a Jew. Um, he was a historian that a lot of modern day historians would say, yeah, if you read Josephus, pretty accurate. Um, he was on the Roman side of things. We so might have been pretty unpopular among Jews. He certainly had no particular axe to grind about Christianity. Um, he wasn't particularly pro-Christianity or against Christianity. And so he's a, an accurate historian as we look at, uh, particularly because he mentions Christianity on the side. He's not talking largely about Christianity. So we can accept his little asides as he's talking about the history of the times um, as an accurate record of, of what was happening. So he mentions um, John the Baptist and you start to think, well, John the Baptist. OK, well, what's the reason for John the Baptist being there at all? Why was he called the Baptist, as Josephus says? Well, because he was baptizing people. Why was he baptizing people? Well, of course, the New Testament reason is because he was preparing people for the Messiah who was coming. And Josephus gives no other reason for why John the Baptist suddenly appears and baptizes people in the desert. This is what he writes, Josephus's portrayal of John the Baptist. But to some Jews, the destruction of Herod's army, there's another uh, New Testament link, the person of Herod, the destruction of Herod's army seemed to be divine vengeance. And certainly a just vengeance for his treatment of John, surnamed the Baptist. And so we see the hostile relationship between Herod and John the Baptist. And we also see that John the Baptist was a popular figure among the Jews. They didn't like what Herod had done to John, which matches very much the New Testament picture. For Herod had put John the Baptist to death. 
We know the story of Salome's dance and all of that kind of thing. Herod had put him to death, though he was a good man. What makes Josephus say he was a good man? Well, he had wonderful ethics. He was a good man and had exhorted the Jews to lead righteous lives, to practice justice towards their fellows and piety towards God, and so doing to join in baptism. Now, of course, the symbol of baptism was that you were moving from one belief to another belief. You were being washed and being cleansed. And John's whole reason for baptizing people was to prepare them for the coming kingdom of God. There is no other reason for him doing that. So Josephus is backing up, in a sense, what the New Testament is teaching. In his view, this was a necessary preliminary if baptism was to be acceptable to God. They must not employ it to gain pardon for whatever sins they committed, but as a consecration of the body, implying that the soul was already thoroughly cleansed by righteousness. Here's Josephus writing about something that's a, a, a theological point. So they must not employ baptism to gain pardon for whatever sins they committed. So you don't get baptized to be saved. You've got to repent of your own sins. That is how you get your sins dealt with, repenting. Um, and the baptism does not save you. It is the consecration of the body, implying that the soul was already thoroughly cleansed by righteousness. So John himself in his teaching would have made that clear, that people aren't saved by being baptized. They're saved by repentance and faith. And the baptism then is a sign that that has happened. The soul was already cleansed through uh, through righteousness. So this is Josephus, a completely secular historian, just talking about John the Baptist, what he was doing, but it fits with what the New Testament was saying. And you don't have to think too far beyond this to realize John was there as a preparation for Jesus. So John knew that Jesus was special. He must become greater. I must become less. It fits with the thought that John the Baptist was a great prophet, loved by the people, but he was preparing the way for someone who was greater than him. And how he was doing that was by telling people that they needed their souls right with God and they needed their bodies consecrated so that they'd be ready for the Messiah coming. It fits. So there is um, Josephus's mention of John the Baptist. Then there's a famous and very disputed passage about Jesus, which hopefully is coming up now. Um, here's Josephus again, so it's the same historian. It says, at this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, and those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. Now, in, a, in, in this passage in Josephus, in, in other versions of Josephus, there is... Um, there are things added which only Christians would have written, like he was the son of God, like he truly rose from the dead, like he is the Christ, the kind of thing that Josephus would never have written. But this is the text that historians say, this is the text that Josephus wrote originally that Christians then embellished over time. But here's the basics of what Josephus wrote. Jesus was a wise man. So clearly he was some kind of public teacher whose wisdom was known. His conduct was good and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. So why did many people from, from the Jewish background and other nations become his disciples, become followers of Jesus? Was he bringing a message that was wider than the Judaism of his day? Because Jews and non-Jews followed him. 
And then, of course, we have the simple historical fact that Pontius Pilate was the governor at the time when Jesus died. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. Again, all we're saying here is that that matches what the New Testament says, that Pontius Pilate was the one under pressure, of course, as the New Testament will tell us, under pressure to to suppress these Jewish people who during Passover time were looking for their Messiah, who were liable to be violent and so on. And uh, the Jews want this man, Jesus, uh, gotten rid of. And Pilate knows that Jesus is a danger because he's calling himself king of the Jews and so on. That New Testament picture is backed up by Josephus's brief description here. Pilate condemned Jesus to be crucified and to die. Um, you had to have done something incredibly big to be crucified. You couldn't, uh, you couldn't crucify a Roman citizen, for example. It was considered too barbaric, no matter what the Roman citizen had done. Jesus must have done something huge to be crucified. Now, of course, the Gospels tell us that Jesus was not a violent revolutionary in any way. And no other historical records tell us that Jesus was a violent revolutionary in any other way. That's not why he was crucified. Why was he crucified? And the only reason we can think of that he was crucified was because he claimed to be God. And you cannot do that in Jewish circles, that a man would claim to be God. So it makes perfect sense that the Jews who bring him to Pilate, um, he claims to be God. They then trump up the charges that he's actually a danger to Rome and Pilate has him crucified and killed. Again, Josephus' words don't prove that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures, but they fit with the general picture that the New Testament gives that Jesus was a wise man, had many followers from both Jews and Gentiles, and that he was crucified, must have done something pretty enormous to be crucified and to die. And those who became his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. Now, that, there's so much in that one line. So Jesus had disciples, and after he died, they did not abandon discipleship. Now, why would they keep following a guy who claimed to be Messiah but then died? Well, they would keep following because they believed that he had risen from the dead. So reading between the lines of Josephus, again, we see corroboration of some incredible claims that the New Testament makes. So there's a couple of passages. That's Josephus, who is one of the big um, historians of the day. Um, if we move on to Tacitus now, um, Tacitus is a Roman historian. Now, this guy is no friend of Christians. So that's why we can trust the kind of things he says about Christian history, because he hates them, and you can see that he hates them. But it seems that he hates Nero even more. Tacitus, as a historian here in his in his book, The Annals, book 15, he's talking about Nero and the horrific things that Nero did to Christians. So if we read the text again, it says, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. And you think, hold on a second there. Why were Christians hated for their abominations? I mean, did Christians just behave really, really, really badly in Rome? Well, that's not the case at all. Christians were hated by the Romans because they believed in one God. And that God was not Roman. So actually, the Romans used to refer to Christians as atheists because they didn't follow any of the Roman gods. Judaism was accepted by Romans because um, they worshipped one God, but they were also not against thinking about 
the Roman gods, the Roman pantheons, Rome, Romans were quite open to people who had their own particular religious views so long as they paid credit to Caesar, so long as they included in their worship, worship of Roman gods. Christians didn't do that. Christians worshipped Jesus exclusively. That's why one reason why they were unpopular. Another reason why they were unpopular is because they were called homosexuals. Um, they greeted each other with a loving kiss. There was a loving relationship between Christians, and this was misconstrued by the general populace that these Christians, are, they, they love each other, they kiss each other, they, they go to this agape love feast, which is where they celebrated communion, the first Christians. And, and because they were unpopular, then stories started to spread. These Christians, not only are they atheists, um, they are also homosexuals. Don't go near them. Um, and of course, Christians were considered anti-culture as well. They could not go to local temples where there were um, feasts that were dedicated to pagan deities. And that's what all Romans did. This was part of Roman culture to go to these meals. And remember Paul talking about the meal, you know, don't eat food that's been offered to idols. Um, Christians were considered anti-culture because they stayed away from these civic festivities. The reason why they stayed away is not because they were unsociable people, but because they felt they couldn't participate in festivities that were dedicated to pagan gods. So you can understand here how Christians who could be living totally moral, totally ethical lives following Jesus Christ could also be considered a hated class for their abominations. They didn't worship Roman gods. They were accused of homosexuality and they didn't take part in pagan festivals. And they, they seemed to be the kind of people who condemned the pagan festivals. We don't want anything to do with these Christians. So that's why Tacitus said, um, Nero fastened the, and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Then here's an interesting bit, Christus, now Christus would be the Latin for Christ. And of course, Tacitus, a Roman historian would speak Latin. So Christus, from whom the name Christians had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So Tacitus backs up what the independent Josephus has already said. Pontius Pilate is the procurator during the time when Jesus Christ, Christus, um, suffers the extreme penalty. What's the extreme penalty? Everybody knew in the Roman world this was crucifixion. It was the worst penalty that you could give to the greatest offender. And again, you ask the question, why was Jesus crucified? And Tacitus goes on, and a most mischievous superstition, because these Christians were considered anti-culture, anti um, but it's a mischievous superstition. It's spreading. It's, it's impacting and influencing Rome. These Christians seem to, be, seem to be influencing a lot of people. It's a mischievous superstition. Thus checked for the moment, again, broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil. So there's Christianity beginning in Judea, um, Israel, um, but even in Rome. Um, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Tacitus was very realistic that Roman culture was pretty vile in lots of ways. And from his perspective, the Christians were just adding their own vileness. But here's another proof that um, by the mid-60s AD, when Nero is the emperor, Christianity has traveled from Judea to Rome, 3,000 miles. Why has it grown so massively? 
Next paragraph, accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths, covered with the skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. So these Christians following Crestus, who seem anti-culture in Rome, they are arrested. And of course, famously, Nero blames the fire of Rome, which most historians think he himself started. He was a crazy madman. He starts the fire in Rome because he wants to build his own city named after himself, Neropolis. Um, but when he starts the fire, he blames the Christians and everybody's ready to accuse the Christians because they're seen as anti-culture. So he arrests them. Um, uh, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted. So there was an immense multitude of Christians in Rome, an immense multitude. Everybody knew who you were talking about when you said Christians in Rome, because the gospel had traveled so far and wide in the first 20 years. So an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city, so not so much of the crime of setting the city on fire, as of hatred against mankind. So they're anti-culture, they don't worship Roman gods, all that kind of stuff. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths, covered with the skins of beasts. This is what happened to our first brothers and sisters. They were covered with the skins of beasts. And as they're covered with beasts, they're then torn by dogs. They're thrown out among dogs who want to eat the skins of the beasts and eat the Christians as they're doing it. They were nailed to crosses as if to put them to shame because they followed the son of God who hung from a cross. They were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination. Tradition will tell us that, that Nero poured tar over these Christians and lit them up in his gardens to, as a kind of a, a festival sort of thing um, to entertain the local populace. And you can tell even Tacitus, even though he hates Christians, he pities them for what they have gone through. Um, but you can see how fervent their commitment to Jesus Christ is, that they're willing to go through all of this. And they plead guilty for being Christians, for claiming that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And they're willing to suffer just as Christ was. Um, it's powerful stuff. I find it very moving myself. So there was Tacitus. Um, if we can move on to uh, Pliny here. Um, Pliny, again, he's a, he's a Roman uh, governor. He's writing a letter to Trajan. Basically, the reason for Pliny writing to Trajan was um, he comes across Christians in his local area and he, he wants them to recant of their Christianity because they won't worship Roman gods, all the usual stuff. They won't call Caesar God. They won't offer incense to Caesar because they can only offer offer their worship to Jesus Christ. So they won't offer incest to Caesar, so they have to be punished. Um, if you won't treat Caesar as a god, you have to be punished. And Pliny is writing because these Christians, they're willing to be tortured. Um, and Pliny is saying, look, um, to, his, to his boss, um, is it right to torture these people? I feel uncomfortable about torturing them. But uh, some of them will not give up their Christian faith, even when they're tortured. What should I do with them? They're a problem because they're so committed to Jesus Christ. So that's the reason he writes the letter. And then Pliny, as he's talking about these Christians to his boss, Trajan, he talks about early church services. What did the first Christians do when they met together in a church service? Fascinating. Um, he says the Christians met on a Sunday. 
Now you think, well, why are you drawing attention to Christians meeting on a Sunday? Well, of course, the Jewish holy day was what? It was the Sabbath. It was Friday evening to Saturday evening. And Judaism had huge rules about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. It was the holy day and you could be killed for dishonoring the Sabbath. So how did the Christian holy day change from the Sabbath on a Friday to Sunday? What made them make that change, which would have been a very controversial change to make? They would have become rejected by their Jewish brothers and sisters. Why did they make Sunday the holy day? Well, because that's the day when Jesus rose from the dead. And that was that tradition goes back to very, very early times, almost immediately after the empty tomb. Christians all gathered around the belief that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead and they changed their day of meeting from the Sabbath on Friday to the Sunday. So the Christians, they met on the Sunday. Pliny tells us this, not the New Testament. They sing a hymn to Christ as to a God. So here's fascinating. Some liberal scholars will say to you, well, you know, the first Christians, they didn't really think that Jesus was a God. They thought he was a very good man whose teachings you could you should follow. But it was only after a period of time that they turned the very human Jesus into a God and started to worship him. Nonsense. Pliny is telling us from the very earliest days, these Christians were meeting and singing a hymn to Christ as to a God. Of course, if you were brought up as a Jew, that was sacrilege to call any human being God was absolute sacrilege. And now to worship him, to be writing hymns that worship Jesus Christ as a God, um, you had to be a pretty brave Christian to do that. And you had to be utterly convinced that the Jesus that you were singing to really was God. And again, we're getting all this evidence from a secular Roman historian. And then he goes on to say, they promised to teach each other not to act immorally. So basically, um, they would have read something from the apostles and they would have then encouraged each other during their church service. They would have taken vows to each other. I will not lie. I will not steal. I will not commit adultery. I will live this godly Christian life and bring ethics in that I don't see in my neighbors. Here's a fascinating thing about early Christianity. There's a guy called Tom Holland, who, again, is a non-Christian historian. You've got to read Tom Holland. Tom Holland says... Christianity brought ethics into the world that had never been known before. Love your enemy. Pray for those who curse you. Love one another. Those ethics just, just did not exist in Roman times. The value of a human being. Tom Holland's book begins with a place in Rome where they planted flowers. The reason why they planted flowers in that particular area of Rome is because there had been so many rotting corpses there. Why were there rotting corpses there? Because people used to bring their slaves and they used to put them to a high bit of this building and throw their slaves off the building onto this piece of land and just leave their slave there as a rotting corpse. In Roman ethics, a slave wasn't even a human being, wasn't even a person, had no rights whatsoever. You could just leave the person dying there and nobody would ask another question. It was into that world that Christian ethics came to say, not just that a slave had value, but the slave was your brother. I mean, the book of Philemon, the slave is your brother, Onesimus. Um, Philemon, take your runaway slave Onesimus back to you. And not just as a slave, but as a brother, that Christian ethic was radical. It had never been heard before. The thought of loving one another, the thought of loving your enemies. I mean, who says that? So Christ brought an ethic into the world 
that the pagan world knew nothing about. And these Christians lived out these ethical lives and were prepared to suffer for it. And Tom Holland, this non-Christian guy, his whole book is about if we get rid of Christianity from our culture today, we have no idea what we're doing. We will go back to pagan times. We will go back to um, personhood being doubted. Um, of course, lots of abortions around in Rome at the time, babies thrown into the Tiber River. That was typical until Christians came along. And some of the early Christians, of course, rescued some of these babies and brought them up as their own and the, as, as their adopted children. That was the Christian ethic that came into the world, which we now accept now as goodness and godliness. But Tom Holland is warning if we get rid of Christianity, then we will go back to the ethical sewer. And so guys like Richard Dawkins today are saying, well, look, we hate Christian theology. We don't believe in Christian theology, but Christian ethics, they're good. Let's, let's maintain these. We dare lose these Christian ethics while getting rid of the Christian story. Um, so he accepts that Christian ethics are so good and moved the world massively forward over the last 2000 years to take over from pagan Roman horrors. So um, these Christians, they promise to each other not to act immorally. They eat together um and i think there's probably a link with communion here that every week the believers would have gathered together as the new testament says they would eat communion together and here was the other thing that the christians were accused of a non-christian hearing you know i'm eating this bread this is the body of christ i'm drinking this cup it's the blood of christ christians were also accused of being cannibals not because there were, they were cannibals, but because there was a misunderstanding of what the meaning of communion meant. When an outsider who never heard the idea of communion heard, they, they eat bread thinking it's somebody's body. They drink a cup thinking it's somebody's blood. That, that's gross, isn't it? That's cannibalism. That's another reason why the Christians were rejected. But obviously they met together to have communion. And what's the meaning of communion? These Christians were convinced from the very earliest of days that Christ had died for our sins and that he was with us in some way that communion signifies and communion was remembering back to his death and all that it means and his glorious resurrection. So again, the picture that Pliny, the secular Roman historian is painting, matches very much New Testament and what early Christians believed about Christ. And so the guy says here, conclusion, they're depraved, excessive. This is a depraved, excessive superstition. Romans thought it was a depraved, excessive superstition, but of course it's not. Um, the Christians were, were high on ethical values. Um, they met together to encourage each other in those ethical values. And they, they believed that Jesus Christ was God. So that is Pliny. Um, what else do I want to mention here? I think we're just about done. Just one final person to mention here at the very end. Um, Julius Africanus, this is quite a disputed passage, but Julius Africanus is a writer in the 200s who cites another writer called Thallus, who we know nothing else about, um, who was writing in 50 AD. And there's a fascinating conversation going on as Julius Africanus quotes from Thallus about the darkness that surrounded the crucifixion. And there's no denial here that there was a darkness that surrounded the crucifixion but they're trying to discuss with each other where did this darkness come from and one guy saying well it was a solar eclipse so no one could deny that there was this unique darkness around the crucifixion in the middle of the afternoon which shouldn't have happened and so there's a denial that there's a solar eclipse and this question is just left open well what was this darkness this darkness was actually seen in Greece as well. 
as Julius Africanus will tell us. Um, so it's another, just a very interesting little tidbit that backs up what the New Testament teaches, this miraculous thing that as Jesus is dying on the cross in the middle of the day, um, God covers the sky in darkness and believers and unbelievers saw that darkness. And it's not just the New Testament that mentions that darkness. It's other writers as well outside the New Testament. So I give you that list of, of writers outside the New Testament to, um, to help us see the credibility behind the Christian story. In some sense, we don't need it. We just read the Gospels. We just read Paul's epistles. And the Holy Spirit has illumined our lives so that we understand Jesus clearly from there. But here's a wonderful way in to speak to somebody else about the reality of Jesus, the historical reality of Jesus Christ that other people wrote about him. And what they wrote matches um, sometimes incredibly what the first Christians believe and taught that Christ died for our sins, rose again on the third day, and that's what led to Christianity uh, crossing the ancient world from Jerusalem um, to Rome. So that's it. That's week one. I don't know whether that's put you off forever, but we've finished week one now. Uh, next week, we will come back with week two, starting with AD 70, the fall of Jerusalem. Um, and Romans basically destroying Jerusalem and the Emperor Titus. See, if you go to Rome today, actually, you will see the Arch of Titus um, in Rome, which was a celebration of Titus destroying Jerusalem, destroying the temple as well, actually. And the temple has never been rebuilt since then. And of course, that fact, that historical fact of the destruction of a temple has never been rebuilt fits in beautifully with the truth that Jesus' sacrifice fulfills the sacrificial system. So there is no need for ongoing sacrifices. Incidentally, it's one of the reasons why we think that the book of Hebrews, which focuses on Jesus being a ful the fulfillment of the temple, it must have been written before 70 AD, because there's no way the writer of the Hebrews would not have used the destruction of the temple as an argument for the fact that Jesus has superseded the Old Testament sacrificial system. But we won't get into that now, certainly not at four minutes to nine on a Monday night. Thank you so much for your time. Um, let me just close us in prayer and uh, hope to see you again next week, 7.30, same time, same place. And we'll pass around notes then. Just to note as well, this has been recorded tonight. We'll put it up on the NESGT website. So you can see it again or send it around to friends if you'd like to do that. Let me just pray now and commit ourselves to the Lord. Father, thank you so much for the interest among your people to find out about the history of Christianity. Um, Father, I just pray that um, you will excite us about this. Thank you, Lord, that you have left a testimony to yourself, not only in the scriptures, but you've left a testimony through um, historians from the past. Um, you've left a testimony from the blood of martyrs. Thank you, Father, for these apostles, 11 out of 12 of whom gave their life's blood for the truth that Jesus had died for our sins and risen again from the dead. Thank you that we walk in their footsteps and their shadows. We walk in the shadow of martyrs who were willing to walk into a Colosseum and be eaten alive by beasts or were willing to have tar poured over them in Nero's gardens um, and be lit up. Um, and they didn't turn their backs on Jesus Christ. Father, help us to follow their example and be prepared to follow Christ to the death. Thank you, Lord, that we're not facing that level of persecution today, but help us to be willing to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice for the one who gave his life for us. We commit each other to you and pray that we will worship our Lord Jesus Christ as the King of glory. In his name we pray. Amen.